This is Radio 316. Are you familiar with a famous writing called Dante's Inferno? And if you are, what do you remember about it? Dante was a medieval Catholic poet, and he wrote something called the Divine Comedy, of which the Inferno is part one. Now, in Dante's Inferno, we see a depiction of hell. And hell is depicted as being comprised of nine different circles, with each circle containing those guilty of specific sins. Now, the popularity of Dante's Inferno over the years begs the question, are there really nine circles in hell? Or to put it another way, are there levels, are there gradients of hellish experience? And alternately, what about heaven? Are there levels there? Well, although Dante's work was fictional, the concept of different rewards or punishments in eternity is a biblical one. And that will be the focus of today's study. Chapter 1, Introduction All right, before we talk about degrees or levels in heaven and hell, let's let's start with the basics. First of all, do you think that heaven and hell are actual, real, physical, literal places? Now, why, why do you think so, or why do you think not? On what basis would you answer that question? Well, for what it's worth, as Christians, we follow Christ, and Christ certainly thought that these things, that these places were real. With regard to heaven, you remember the thief on the cross. Jesus promised the thief on the cross while they were dying, today you will be with me in paradise. With regard to heaven, Jesus promised the thief a real legitimate place that he was going to. Not a state of mind, but a place. Jesus believed heaven was a real place, and there's other examples of this, such as when he talked about uh, in my father's house are, are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you when I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus thought, Jesus said, Jesus knew that heaven is real. Now, with regard to hell, Jesus knew the same thing. Jesus knew that hell is a real place. Do you remember the passage when he said, do not fear those who can kill the body, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell? Again, Jesus, whenever he refers to the afterlife, whenever he refers to eternity, whenever he refers to heaven or hell, he refers to them as locations, as places, not states of mind, not allegories. They are real places. Now, with that established, and we had to establish that first, the next question becomes, are they eternal? It's one thing to have to go someplace, but do you have to stay in that place? Now, there are some uh, Christians who, who will believe that heaven is real and that heaven is eternal, but they don't offer the same regard for hell. They think that hell might just be figurative or, at the worst, it's kind of a short-term location. Now, there are still others who embrace something called annihilationism. Annihilationism is the idea that the souls of the wicked, the condemned and the like, are not eternally condemned, but rather Rather, they just disappear. They just wink out of existence. To paraphrase one commentator who has embraced this theology, who has embraced annihilationism, he said this. He said, hell is eternal in consequence, but not in duration. The wicked are destroyed forever, but they're not forever being destroyed. Now, do we believe that? Well, no, not if we're being scriptural, not if we're following Christ's own words. Again, we could go throughout scripture to bear out this case. 
case. But the words of Jesus do it for us. He says hell is a place of eternal torment. He says that in Luke 16. He says it contains unquenchable fire. Not a brief candle, but unquenchable fire. He says that in Mark 9. He says it's a place where the worm, whatever that is, does not die in Mark chapter 9. He says it's a place, a place again, where people will gnash their teeth in anguish and regret and dismay. That's in Matthew 13. He says it's a place from which there's no return even to warn loved ones. We see that in the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. So whether you're talking about heaven's perpetual, eternal, wonderful shores or hell's fires, they are both regularly, consistently described by Christ as unending, real, literal places. Now, we had to establish all that in order to proceed with a discussion about eternal rewards and punishments and the like. An eternal reward doesn't do you any good if you don't have an eternal location in which to enjoy it in. With that said, let me ask you one one thinking question, kind of an aside here. When you hear that hell's fires are never quenched, that sounds terrible, but why is that the case? Just out of curiosity, why, why is God's wrath unending? Why isn't he angry just for a season and then stops? Why is his wrath unending? Well, the short answer to that question is that the fires of hell don't go out because, because they always have fuel. You see, it's been said that sinners in hell don't stop sinning, and therefore God's wrath is ongoing. In any case, whether one goes to heaven, whether one goes to hell, we all have an eternal future somewhere. I hope we can agree to that. We all have an eternal future somewhere. So what will that future be like? Or in returning to our topic, will the the future, will that future in heaven or hell differ from others who might share our estate by ways of level or degree? Chapter 2. Different Sins, Different Punishment. All right, we've already noted that Dante's Inferno talks about nine circles or nine levels in hell. The problem is, of course, that Dante's work is fiction. So the question becomes, what does the Bible, what does an inerrant, inspired work have to say on this topic? Well, do you recall any times in the Bible where an individual's condemnation, an individual, a city, or a nation, where their condemnation was referred to as being worse than another's. Well, one famous example is when Jesus talked about the rejection that he'd faced in his home communities, in places like Bethsaida and Capernaum, where he spent a lot of time. In Matthew 11, he said this about those cities and about the consequences that they would face for rejecting him there. He said, Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the mighty works that were done in you had been done in Tyre and in Sidon, which were pagan cities off to the north, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and in ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre, for Sidon, in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. All right, what do you remember about Sodom and Gomorrah? 
Well, you might remember the nature of their destruction, if not the nature of their sins. And the nature of the destruction was fire and brimstone from heaven. You see, Sodom and Gomorrah were the poster children for God's wrath. Throughout the Old and the New Testament, if you refer to Sodom and Gomorrah, you're referring to those who had earned up the full measure of God's wrath. With that said, in Matthew 11, what did Jesus just say? Well, he said that Capernaum, Capernaum, which had a synagogue that he had taught in, Capernaum, which is in Israel, Capernaum would undergo a greater condemnation, a greater judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah and Tyre and Sidon ever would. Now, why? Why is that? Well, the reason is this. Because Bethsaida, Capernaum, and other places there in Galilee, they had rejected a far greater light, a far greater revelation than Sodom ever did. You see, the people of Bethsaida and Capernaum were guilty of something greater than those in Sodom and Gomorrah. Specifically, they were guilty of rejecting a far greater revelation from God than their pagan predecessors. And because of that, Jesus said they'll face greater punishment. That's the clear, unambiguous statement that he makes in Matthew 11 and elsewhere. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Can you imagine the sinful gall of the man who was able to to see Christ in person, You know, who went into the synagogue in Capernaum and sat down and listened to Jesus teach, and then observed his miracles, and then after observing his miracles, after looking Jesus in the eyeball, after listening to the Son of God teach, that this man would then tell Jesus that he wants no part of him. Can you imagine the gall of that? And if so, can you understand then why such a man would receive greater punishment than one who hadn't, even in Sodom and Gomorrah? Now in Hebrews 11, we we see additional uh, proof of this. In Hebrews 11, we see this. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. But of how much worse punishment do you suppose? Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? You see, the same principle applies in both Matthew 11 and Hebrews 11. There's a worse punishment given to some than others, and the basis for that differing punishment is the degree of light or revelation that they've rejected. All right, let's let's consider one final example from Mark 12. But in this example, it's not going to be rejection of Christ that leads to greater punishment, but rather there's going to be a reference to the specific nature or extremity of one's sins. In Mark 12, Jesus said this, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, who love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. In this passage, it's religious hypocrisy of the Pharisees and others that's cited for greater condemnation. Now, if Dante's circles were accurate, then this would have put the Pharisees in the eighth circle, in the eighth circle of hell, as those guilty of defrauding others. That sin, the sin of the Pharisees, would only be exceeded in Dante's scheme and Dante's work, would only be exceeded by that of Judas, of Judas Iscariot, because Dante reserved the ninth the lowest, the worst circle for traitors. 
Now, for those who are wondering what Dante's full list, what all nine circles are according to Dante, here they are, you can file it away, but remember these are not the teachings of the scripture. In Dante's Inferno, the nine circles are limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, anger, heresy, violence, fraud, and treachery. Now, the Bible doesn't share Dante's prioritization. But it does suggest, as we've established, that certain sins are particularly bad. All sins merit death, and yet some are especially heinous. Thinking about murdering someone is bad, but actually murdering them is worse. God knows this, and he he administers his discipline accordingly. Finally, before we move on, let me also note that the Bible mentions that sinning is bad enough, but if you lead someone else to sin, you're in a particularly dangerous spot, especially if that individual is a child. In Matthew 18, it says this, Whoever receives one such child in my name, in Christ's name, receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. If you sin, that's bad enough. But causing others, especially children, to sin, it would be better to sink to the very bottom of the ocean. All right, so we've introduced briefly some of the biblical examples of one sinner's eternal punishment being different than another. And we've talked about some of the extenuating factors. With that said, does the same sort of scales or measures pertain to those who will be in heaven? In other words, will the rewards of one man be equal to the rewards of another man in heaven? Let's consider that question now. Chapter 3, Earthly Deeds, Eternal Rewards. In Matthew 6, Jesus made this famous statement. He said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But, but rather, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. All right, what are some of the implications of Christ's words here? What is he trying to tell us in Matthew 6? Well, the most obvious implication of those words is this, that the actions or the choices that we make every day have eternal significance, that what we do here on earth has the capacity capacity in ways we might not understand to build up some sort of reward or treasure that will be received on that side of the veil. Now, practically speaking, what does that mean? How do we apply that knowledge? Well, at the least, we can conclude that what we do this very day, what we do this afternoon, what we do tonight matters in the eyes of God. Certain choices that we make every day, tonight, tomorrow, next week, next year, will have greater or lesser value in the eyes of our maker, greater or lesser value in the eyes of God. And in time, scripture says that he will reward us according to what we've done. Now, to be clear, this has nothing to do with your salvation. What we heard in Matthew 6 has nothing to do with salvation. The rewards that Christ is referring to in Matthew 6 do not include your soul. Your salvation comes solely by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone, not of works so that no man may boast. Even though we're called to do Christ-like things, we cannot add anything to Christ's work. And anything we have done 
them does not compel God to save us as if salvation is a debt that he owes. No amount of helping old ladies across the street or doing good deeds will get us into heaven. There's no vest of merit badges that they will check at the door. There's no rung of works on any sort of ladder that we can climb by which we heave ourselves onto God's golden shores. So, so none of what we're talking about has to do with our salvation. Our works do not save us full stop. But they do prove that we are saved, like fruit from a healthy tree. And in God's time, Scripture repeatedly says that he will reward us for the works done in his name. This is the consistent, repeated, unambiguous teaching of Scripture. Now, what are some of the passages that do so consistently, repeatedly, unambiguously? What are some of the passages that speak to this promise? Well, here's just a select few. Matthew 16 says, The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father, and he will recompense every man according to his deeds. Matthew 10, whoever gives one of these little ones a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly, I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Matthew 5, 12, blessed are you when men cast insults at you, when they persecute you, when they say evil things against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. You see, each one of these passages yokes one's actions here on earth, our temporal actions, to some sort of spiritual, eternal reward. All these verses indicate that our future heavenly existence is affected in ways we can't possibly understand now by the rewards that are the recompense for our deeds. Now, do we know what those rewards are? Is there some sort of a chart or point system in the Bible? Does Bob Barker show up and tell the good people what they've won? No, of course not. At this time, we see through the glass darkly, and so we can't label, we can't identify the rewards that these passages are referring to. But think of it this way. Here on earth, gold is one of the most desirable things, rewards, properties that you could receive. Well, in heaven, gold is the asphalt that the roads are paved with. It's a commonplace thing. And if it is, then how much more amazing can the true valuables of that kingdom be? Now, before we move on, let me give you my favorite reference in Scripture to the rewards we'll find in heaven. In 1 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul tells us two things. First of all, he says we can't save ourselves. We can't lay a foundation or a basis for our salvation apart from that which is provided by Christ. And number two, he also says that we do have a say in what sort of spiritual building is placed on that foundation. Specifically, 1 Corinthians 3 says this, No man can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, with silver, with precious stones, or with wood or hay or straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. 
So what Paul was saying is that your life as a Christian represents a spiritual construct that's supposed to be composed of good, proper spiritual materials. For example, the man who's dedicated to prayer, to scripture, to fellowship, the one who loves God and loves people, that man is building a spiritual house with the equivalent of gold, silver, and precious stones. Conversely, the the Christian who spends all day on, on the Xbox or wasting the time that God has given him is building his house with the spiritual equivalent of wood or hay or straw. And when each of these two men stand before God on the day to come, their works will be evaluated and tested, and only those works with eternal spiritual ramifications will remain. Everything else will be gone, and the works that remain, those works will be rewarded. Once again, we don't know what those rewards look like, but we do know that they exist, and we do know that they're worth pursuing. The question is, are we doing so? Chapter 4, Closing Thoughts Let's say that you walk into a preschool class, and as you do so, you have two trays in your hand. Now, the first tray contains chocolate chip cookies. However, the cookies on it, they're kind of stale. They're chips of oil that you found in your attic from 1970. So that's what you have on one tray. Now, what does the other tray have? Well, let's say that it has a, a USB, a flash drive. And on that flash drive, there are millions of dollars in Bitcoin. Now, as you set both trays down in the preschool classroom, which one do you think the kids are going to run to first? Are the kids going to run to the flash drive or are they going to make a beeline for the cookies, no matter how stale they might be? Well, you already know the answer. The kids, generally speaking, broadly speaking, your kids might be different, but most kids will choose the stale Chips Ahoy because the value to them of a cookie, no matter how stale it is, is more obvious and more immediate to them than that of cryptocurrency that they cannot see or taste or touch touch or feel. In that scenario, even stale Chips Ahoy is perceived as more valuable than that which really is of immense value. Now what if, what if those same two trays were placed before you? What would you do? Which tray would you choose? Would you opt for a cookie-heavy investment portfolio or, or would you take the millions of dollars of Bitcoin? Well, even if you don't know what cryptocurrency is, I'll bet you'd take the Bitcoin. Now why is that? Well, it's because over the years you've learned something that the preschooler hasn't and that is how to properly value such things. In other words, time and maturity have taught you how to assign proper value to material goods and objects, generally speaking. You understand how to value things found within the, the material world. And because of that, you and I are going to assign very little value to cookies that come from our attic. With that said, what about spiritual things? Are you and I the same sort of shrewd investors when it comes to spiritual matters? Well, candidly, I don't think so. When it comes to spiritual matters, most people make very poor investments. You see, if you give a man a, a choice between a million dollars here on earth versus treasures in heaven, or at some point in the future, he'll probably opt for the cold hard cash. When it comes to spiritual matters, our perception of value is usually way off. God might tell us to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, but we're too busy jamming chips ahoy in our pocket. Is that you right now? 
Are you having trouble with spiritual valuation? And if so, then what are you going to do about it? In today's study, we've seen multiple passages that suggest that the actions, deeds, or choices that we make now have eternal ramifications and can positively or negatively affect our experience on the other side of the veil. Now, for those who remain dead in their sins and their trespasses, this is a dreadful thought. We talked about this before. It's a dreadful thought because it means that each sin, each additional sin that one pursues, it's like pouring more coals on one's head in accordance with the nature of the sin itself. Conversely, while all believers are saved solely on the basis of Christ's atoning work, some are saved, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 3, as if through fire, and the spiritual construct of their lives is just a a pile of hay and straw, even though it sits on top of a perfect foundation. For others, and I hope for you, the spiritual construct is something much more impressive. Perhaps a tower of gold, of silver, and of precious jewels. Again, both individuals have the same foundation. The thief on the cross, you and I, we all have the same foundation. But what we built on top of that foundation might be radically different. And so it would appear are the eternal rewards that accompany it. This week, my final encouragement to you would be to think long term. In other words, consider some of the verses that we've talked about today and start laying up for yourself treasures in heaven. Thank you for joining us for today's broadcast. To be notified of next week's recording, please follow Radio 316 on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the app of your choice. To listen to Dr. Holt's recent series on the book of Matthew, search for the Radio FPC podcast or go to r316. Dot org. This is Radio 316.